Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking this morning at the topic, Christian Appetites and Actions. Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Feed us. Jesus said that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our counselor. That he would bring to our minds those things that we need to understand. God, we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, as I pray so often, all I can do is speak to ears. It takes you to speak to hearts. God, we ask that you might be pleased to do that. As Jesus said in the book of Revelation, let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. So, Lord, speak to us through your word. May we be a changed people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thomas Costin's history, The Three Edwards, describes the life of Reynald III, a 14th century duke in what is now the country of Belgium. Reynald III was grossly obese. Now, some people today are obese because of heredity, uh, hereditary issues. Others are obese because of other health issues or 
hormonal difficulties, but Reynald was obese because he was a glutton. He loved to eat. After a violent quarrel with his younger brother Edward, Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynald but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynald in the Newkirk Castle and he promised him that he could regain his title and property if he was ever able to simply leave the room. Now that wouldn't have been difficult for most people because the room had a number of windows and a number of doors and all of them were of the normal average size. None of the windows or doors were barred. None of them were locked. The problem was Reynolds' obesity. All he had to do was lose weight and he could walk out of the room and walk into freedom and recover his title. But Edward also knew his brother's weakness for food. And so every day Edward had some of Belgium's finest chefs prepare all of the delicacies of the nation. And every day Edward had this smorgasbord brought in to Reynold's room. And Reynold ate and he ate and he ate and he ate and he ate. And he continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And for 10 years he was a prisoner to that single room. He never left. Never left as long as Edward was alive. Then one day Edward was killed in battle. So Edward's men tore down, they demolished that room that held Reynald captive and Reynald was finally able to walk out into freedom. But shortly thereafter because of his size and poor health, he too died. Appetites. We're going to talk about appetites today. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we saw that we have a wonderful salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter said, it is a salvation that even angels long to look into. In light of God's grace in saving us, we saw that we are to live in hope by setting our hope on the grace that is to be revealed to us. We are to live in holiness. We are to live in a reverential fear of God, and we are to live in love. He pointed out that the message of this salvation that we have was made known to us through the Word of God, and the Word of God is like seed, but not like seed out in the world, because seed out in the world has a shelf life to it, if you will. Whatever is produced from seed in the world still wilts and eventually dies. However, God's Word is like seed that never dies. God's Word remains forever. And God gives us eternal life that lasts forever. Now that naturally sets up the next point that Peter's going to talk about. We see today that we are to be a people of changed appetites and actions. God's Word is to be craved by the child of God. And if God's Word is craved, then certain actions will surely follow very soon in the life of a believer. 
first thing I want you to notice with me today is that we are to develop the proper appetite for God's Word. We are to develop the proper appetite for God's Word. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Just as God's word is necessary for salvation, God's word is also necessary for Christian growth. Peter gives the analogy here, the image here of a newborn infant craving milk. Now, folks, I've got a confession to make to you this morning, okay? I used to be an addict. That's true. I used to be an addict, okay? When I was a child, my parents say that I was a milk addict. I truly was. They said it's absolutely incredible the amount of milk I would go through every single day. That may be one reason why, despite the fact that I was a very active child and played sports, I never broke a bone. I'm going to tell you a funny story, though, which is going to show you two things. Number one, it may be possible that my dentist was wrong, or it may be possible that I'm just a little bit weird. No comment on that one, though, okay? (laughs) Growing up, when I was wrestling... I got one of my main front teeth, top teeth, kicked out. And the new tooth that came in was the, according to the dentist, it was the permanent tooth. But it came in wrong. It came in all twisted and deformed. And the dentist said it's got to go. But because it's his permanent tooth, we're going to have to either put an implant in or he's going to have to wear a bridge there the rest of his life because, again, it's his permanent tooth. Well, he had to go ahead and pull it. He felt he had no choice because of the condition of the tooth. He pulled it, and lo and behold, you know what happened? Another tooth came in. Nobody had an explanation for that. My parents thought, could it have been all that milk that he drank that had something to do with that? Now, obviously, I I, I doubt it, but for some reason, God just gave me a new tooth. But my parents said when I was a toddler, I would literally go into shakes like a drug addict if I had not had milk within a given amount of time. Peter is saying here that a Christian needs to crave the Word of God. I want to spend just a moment reviewing a couple of things. First of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, God's Word is instrumental in our salvation. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me back just a few pages to the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to direct your attention to verse 14. In verse 14 he says, but as for you continue in what you have learned and of what and what you have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what does he say scripture does? It makes us wise for what? 
makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to turn to James chapter 1 now. James chapter 1 and uh, verse 17 of James chapter 1. James writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Look at verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verses uh, 16 and 17. In verses 1, uh, in, in chapter 1 rather, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so in the gospel is what? It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. One more. Romans 10 17. Romans 10 17. Paul says so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks what's the New Testament telling us? The New Testament is telling us that the Bible is instrumental in our salvation. When you get saved or when you got saved, it was either that you yourself were reading God's Word or some preacher somewhere was preaching it. And even if you got home later and were saved at some later point that evening or some other day, it was because God's Word had witnessed to you of your sin and it had witnessed to you of God's answer to human sin through Jesus Christ. The point is, God's Word is instrumental in our salvation. Now, here's Peter's other point in chapter 2. If God's Word is that critical, if God's Word is instrumental in our salvation, then God's Word ought to continue to be a very precious thing in the heart of the child of God. The, the, the child of God ought to continue to crave it because it is through God's Word that you and I grow. You're not going to grow very much in your Christian life apart from your involvement in a personal study of the Word of God. By way of personal testimony, when I got saved, all of a sudden I had an incredible appetite to start reading and studying God's Word. I had a college professor tell me one time, he said, you've got more writing in the margins of your Bible than the publisher's got. I take notes in my Bible. They're there when I go back at a later time. When you fill up one Bible with notes, go buy another Bible. That's a blessing we have today, isn't it? You can go buy another Bible. 
when I got when I first got saved, I, I started. I'll tell you where I started reading too. I started reading first in, in the book of of Acts and then the epistles. Here was my thinking. I thought, well, if Acts is the birthday of the church and new Christians getting together and starting worship as a church and growing together and going out on mission together, and then the epistles were written to to new young churches to show Christians how to live. If I've become a new Christian, I want to read the book of Acts to find out more about the church and I want to read the, the letters the, the, the letters of Paul and also the general epistles I want to study those because those are written to new believers and to believers in general how we might grow now please don't misunderstand me all of God's word is the inspired word of God it's equally inspired folks the book of Leviticus is just as much inspired as the book of Romans is I'm just telling you where I started reading when I first got saved so that I would start growing as a Christian. There ought to be an incredible appetite in our lives, though, for the Word of God. Remember that 2 Timothy passage I read a moment ago about how if we read on, it would have said all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine for correction, for training in righteousness. Watch verse 17 say, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the scripture not only points you to Jesus when, when you first get saved, but then as a new believer, it helps you grow and it equips you to be able to do the work that God's called you to do. So you ought to crave it. Now let's look at the first part of verse 1. He says in verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If we're going to have a healthy appetite for God's word, then there are some things that we're going to have to lay aside. It's kind of like junk food. If you're going to have a healthy appetite for healthy food, you can't sit down and eat junk food 30 minutes before mealtime. Junk food's going to kill your appetite. Well, sin is going to kill your appetite for God's word. Somebody once wisely said, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. So he says we have to lay aside malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's speaking there of repentance. Folks, we don't hear much about repentance anymore, do we? Joel Osteen says he doesn't ever point out to people that they're sinners because this was in an interview on Larry King Live some years ago. He doesn't ever preach against sin or talk about sin because after all, people feel bad enough about themselves as it is. Well, in all seriousness, Joel Osteen is probably a false shepherd in my opinion. In my opinion, okay? In fact, I'm not sure there's a probably about it. I think he is a false shepherd in my opinion. Repentance is an ongoing part of a Christian's life. You and I, this side of heaven, will never outgrow our need of repentance. 
Now hopefully as we grow in the Lord, we'll gain more and more victory over sin. But don't kid yourself, folks. We live in a fallen world and we have an enemy and the flesh is weak at times. We used to have a church member that wanted me to promote and preach on the Wesleyan doctrine of complete sanctification, and I refused to do so, and I still refuse to do so. I don't think it's biblical. Complete sanctification says that all of a sudden, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next year in your life, You're going to wake up one day and if you're a growing Christian, just all of a sudden something's going to come over you and you're not going to sin anymore. Now, in all fairness to those who hold that doctrine, they're not saying that you can't sin anymore. They're just saying that you won't. When When you go through complete sanctification... When you go through complete sanctification, just boom, you're not going to sin anymore. And I said, I'm not preaching that. Because I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. I still need to repent. And you know what I think Paul did too, Romans chapter 7. Remember what Paul, that battle, he's saying the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. The things, I, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, folks, again, hopefully as we grow in Christ and as we're in the Word of God more and more and more, that we're conquering sin more and more through the power of God's Spirit. But as long as we live in this flesh, we're going to have to repent. There's got to be intake, God's Word, and there's got to be repentance. Now, the sins that he mentions here in verse 1 are, are sins that other sins grow out of. There is, he mentions malice or anger. If you don't lay aside malice or anger, you're probably going to end up committing other sins that malice and anger is going to lead to. How about deceit? Same thing there. Many other things grow out of that as well as hypocrisy and envy and slander. Again, folks, sin will keep you from God's Word if you don't deal with it. I I think of the sin of pride. If If you're not in God's Word, you might think that you know too much. I need God's Word to teach me what to believe and how to live. And so he says, putting away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If you have then it ought to be your desire that you want to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Now, second thing I want to point out this morning. Embrace 
your new identity as the people of God. Embrace your new identity as the people of God. Pick up reading with me in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have, you have received mercy. One of the glorious truths of the Old Testament is that God gave instructions on the building of a temple where God would meet with His people. God gave instructions in the wilderness for the building of the tabernacle. And then, of course, once they got into the promised land, God gave them those same instructions on the building of the temple. You read in the early chapters of how Solomon, when, when Solomon built the temple and, and dedicated it, afterwards what happened? The glory of God moved into the temple. At times in the tabernacle and the temple both, the presence of God and the glory of God were was so profound that people could not even enter in. But we know what happened. Through disobedience, just as God said, the people were carried into exile and the temple was destroyed. When they came back after being in exile in Babylon for 70 years, they rebuilt the temple. Some of the people were grieved because they did not see the same degree of magnificence and glory in the second temple as they had witnessed in the first. But God promised them that he would bless that temple as well. And then we come to the New Testament times. Herod, in order to appease the Jewish people, had been working on the temple for about 16 years before the birth of Christ. According to John chapter 2 verse 12, from the time that Herod started working on it until then, 46 years had passed. In fact, Herod would keep building on the temple until 63 AD, only seven years before it was finally destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus pointed out that the second temple would also be destroyed that not one stone would remain on top of the other. And in 70 AD, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that is exactly what the Romans did. The Romans came into Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple. Since that time, there's been no temple in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, the Bible points out that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Will the Jews rebuild a temple in the end times? We can talk about that all that we want to. But whether they will or they won't, God is not dealing with people anymore on the basis of the old covenant or the temple or the sacrifices. Just read the book of Hebrews, folks. All of that is obsolete now. Even if they rebuilt it and started offering sacrifices again... God would not recognize those sacrifices for sin. Because Jesus fulfilled all that. The church is God's temple. The people of God in Christ are God's people. The amazing thing in this passage here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter is that Peter takes up the language of the people of Israel right out of the book of Exodus and he applies those very words to the church now. What Peter says here beginning in verse 9 is almost an exact quotation out of Exodus chapter 19. The first six verses of Exodus chapter 19 where God had said to Israel at the base of Mount Sinai that they were a holy nation now, a chosen people and a kingdom of priests. They had not been a people, but God chose them and they became the people of God. They became a holy nation. But now Peter takes that same passage, those identical words, and he applies those to the church. And as the New Testament points out, God's not done with Israel yet. But at the end of the times of the Gentiles, God's going to stir the Jew to jealousy and a complete number of Israel is going to be saved. But what God is going to do is to graft them back into the one olive tree that we see in Romans chapter 11. There are not two olive trees. There's only one olive tree. Paul says, we, the Gentiles, are the unnatural branches who have been grafted into the olive tree while the natural branches were broken off. He's referring to the Jew. He says, they were broken off so that you, the Gentile, can be grafted in even though you're the unnatural wild branch. And Paul says... If God is able to graft the wild branch in, it's really no challenge at all for God to graft the natural branches back in too. And that's exactly what he's going to do someday. But my point is there's only one olive tree, only one people of God. If the Jew is going to be saved, it will only be as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, which they're they're doing now and apparently they're going to do in a great degree at some point. But both Jew and Gentile together become one people, one tree, one temple. Yes, we ought to be so grateful to the Jew that we stand on their shoulders. We're so indebted to them. Gentiles in the church should love the Jew. We owe them so much. But folks, if we really love the Jew, we ought to be praying for them and trying to win them to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the living stone. He's the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by men, he says here, uh, quoting from Isaiah, rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God. Men crucified him, but what did God do? Men might have crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You either humble yourself and fall upon him, or he will fall upon you and crush you. If you put your trust in him, he says here, you will not be put to shame. Every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the the language that he's using here, every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is like another stone is being added to this new temple, the people of God. God is indeed building his temple. He's building his church. Remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is indeed building his temple. He's building his church. He's building his people. Every soul that comes to Christ is like a living stone being added to this temple. And while we are in this temple, he says here, we are also a priesthood. We're not only living stones. He's mixing metaphors here. Not only are we living stones, but we're a priesthood. Every believer is a priest. And what we're doing in this new temple, the church is offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest. We enter into the presence of God through our high priest. He says, you are now, according to verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You as Gentiles were once not a people, but now if you're in Christ, you are the people of God. Folks, whether you like it or not, that the, the unmistakable language here is that the church is the new Israel of God. I don't see any other way of looking at these verses. In fact, Galatians 6.16 uses that very phrase, Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. He uses that exact phrase. The true descendants of Abraham, as Paul points out in Romans 2, is not national Israel, but those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're the true sons of Abraham. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. They were God's own possession. They were to proclaim the excellencies of him who had called them out of darkness. They were once not a people, but then they became the people of God. Again, Peter is taking all of that Old Testament language and he is applying it to the church. What does that mean? Well, several things. First of all, it means you're God's own possession. You are God's temple. You are God's family. You're God's people. 
And because you're God's people, you are to be holy as we saw in chapter 1. You and I are to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. There's to be a family likeness, like father, like children. If He's holy, then we as His children are to be holy. As God's people in temple and priesthood, we're to offer sacrifices of praise to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can go boldly into the presence of God through our high priest Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have the forgiveness of our sins through His shed blood. His shed blood washed away all of our sins. But not only did His sacrifice on Calvary's cross provide that, provide our redemption of sins, but also through His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, He provides our entryway into the Holy of Holies. Folks, just thinking about that ought to thrill your heart. It should. You had no hope. You were not God's people, but now you are God's people if you're in Christ. And then he says we're to proclaim his excellencies. As the hymn says, we've a story to tell to the nations. Now, now that's a hymn I can't agree with fully because of its post-millennial understanding of the end times. But the first part of the hymn is exactly right. We do have a story to tell to the nations. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And finally he points out here in verses 10 to 12 that ultimately what this means is that you and I are to live as strangers in the night. Now don't get that old Frank Sinatra song in your mind because you know he's talking about immoral, immoral love of strangers who meet through the night and all that. I'm not going into all that. You know, but anyway, but there is a sense in which you and I are strangers in the night. Because what is this culture? This culture is night. This present culture is night. It's darkness. And you're a pilgrim. You're an exile. You're a sojourner. You're to be like Abraham who is looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. This world is not your home. You and I are supposed to stand out in this world like a sore thumb. You and I are to live in such a way that even unbelievers before God one day will have to give glory to God. Don't give an unbeliever the excuse to say before God, if you're going to let him into your heaven, then you've surely got to let me into your heaven. Now that would be poor theology on the part of the unbeliever anyway, but you know what I'm saying. Don't give the unbeliever an excuse. I want to ask you today, how is your appetite? Do you have the proper appetite for God's Word? 
If you do not believe you do, why not ask God to give you that proper appetite? Folks, the Bible talks about praying according to the will of God. You, you know what I think a prayer according to the will of God would be here? God, give me that proper appetite for your word. I, I think that would be a prayer that would honor God and God would be pleased to answer. What about repentance? Are there things in your life that you know you need to lay aside? You see, those things are not only wrong and sinful in and of themselves, but those things are also going to dampen a proper appetite you ought to have for the things of God. So on both of those levels, you ought to want to lay aside sin. You ought to want to lay aside sin because it's dishonoring to God. It's a transgression against the law of God. But you also ought to want to lay it aside because as long as that's in your life, it's keeping you from having the proper appetite for God that you ought to have. You're a living stone in God's temple to think about it. A living stone, as a stone in God's temple, are you carrying out God's purpose for your life? Because, see, the Bible talks about every stone. That's one analogy. The, another analogy is the body of Christ, the different roles of different parts of the body. Same thought. Every member, every stone has a purpose in God's temple. Are you carrying out your purpose? Are you being obedient to God? And then lastly, as a Christian, are you living and witnessing in such a way that God's temple will be growing? Now, folks, God is building His church. Make no mistake about it. But I want to be a part of God's work to the degree that His temple is so big that one day we will be astounded to see people in heaven from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. If it were up to some Christians, God's temple wouldn't be any bigger than a doghouse for a toy breed dog. Again, I'm glad God's temple doesn't depend on us and our efforts. Jesus said, I'm building my church. But are you proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage in Scripture. Help us to be a people of the proper appetite and action. That in every way we will be about your business. That we will hunger for you and thirst for you. And that we will study your word and come to know you better. And God, knowing you better, that that will be reflected in our lives out in the world and in the church. Remind us that we're to be a peculiar people. Forgive us, Lord, that we're so often about those things that are not pleasing to you. God, I pray that there would be a radical change in some people's lives. A whole new purpose. That they would begin laying up their treasures in heaven and seeking first the kingdom of God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.